0: Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula 1 pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I want to explore the role that good old-fashioned common sense can play in the cutting-edge science and data-driven industry of Formula 1, and of course, how we can all learn from that in our daily lives. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Pit lane life lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's that's a failure. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. As ever, thank you so much for joining wherever and however it is you're listening to this. I appreciate every single one of you uh, for taking time out of your precious time, out of your day to spend it with me talking about my stories, talking about the messages and the lessons that I think we can all benefit from, from this elite world of Formula One that I've had this privileged experience to be part of for so many years now. Um, I appreciate anyone who sent me a message over the course of the last week. There were quite a few of you, so thank you. I've responded to as many people as I can and will continue to do so. So please keep those messages coming. It means a lot. Uh, And to anyone who rated and reviewed the podcast in the podcast store, I cannot tell you how important that is for the success of of this show. It gives the show credibility. It makes people switch on and click on to us and they will then join our community. This community will get bigger and when the community gets bigger, we get more feedback, we get more input into the show and hopefully it continues to grow and to get better. And we build the community that you guys are already part of. So I hope that's of interest to you. It really is a massive interest to me. It's the very reason I do this. So If you like what you hear in this show, if you've liked what you've heard so far when any other episodes have been on, please just take a moment. It will take you two minutes, no more than that, literally, to give the podcast a rating and a couple of words of review wherever it is you're listening to this. Uh, It would mean the world, so thank you. Um, In today's episode, I've talked about in the intro there of covering this topic of common sense being applied to scientific or data-led Industries, something that I don't think happens enough, something that we've potentially got lost with, where we have been led so far down a path of data and science that actually the human perspective of common sense can easily get lost. So, I want to cover some more of those. I'll come on to that again in a moment. I also want to talk about Formula One going to Vegas. I'm not going to talk about the racetrack, the cars, what it might mean for Grand Prix racing, but what I do want to talk about is the decision. First of all, to go there. And secondly, the the decision that Formula One has taken to not race on a traditional Sunday, but move that Grand Prix to a Saturday night. Something that Formula One hasn't done for many, many years. Decades, in fact, the last time F1 raced on a Saturday. So why have they done it? What's the benefit to doing it? And what, of course, lies ever, what can we learn from that decision making process and the outcomes that will come from it? I want to get into all of that if we can get through it. But I want to start by saying I've got COVID. <laughs> so if my voice sounds a bit croaky this week, uh, that is why. And that is exactly the point where I want to start this episode, I'm fine by the way, totally feeling fine, but just got a croaky voice. Um, I want to start this episode on that subject because over the past couple of days, I have, I was feeling a little bit rough. I had a little bit of cold and flu type symptoms, and so uh, I've been taking regular COVID tests as we do every single day, going into work, filming on the Wheeler Dealer show. Um, now, one of those tests came back with a very faint line in the positive. Uh, position on the lateral flow test. So of course, I took a PCR test, which then came back negative. I took more lateral flow tests, which were also negative. But the symptoms continued to grow. I got more and more cold and flu-like symptoms. I then developed the cough. Everything associated with COVID, I had it, and yet all of those tests were now showing negative. Seemed like a confusing situation. And the only reason I bring that up is because it flagged to me this idea that I'm looking at some data here, some science. I'm looking at a test kit that someone's produced in a uh, laboratory, a lateral flow test kit where I can take that test at home, having been instructed how to do it through the instructions that come with the test, but also having now done probably hundreds of them over the last couple of years, like many people. I think I know what I'm doing. I can do these tests. I know how they should be done. I also know how they shouldn't be done to get the correct results. And yet my results that I was seeing on these lateral flow tests and the PCR test were somewhat conflicting. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because when I look at that, this data, this science that's sitting in front of me on the table after taking the test that says I haven't got COVID, that's fine. Until you then start to factor in all of the symptoms in the way that I'm feeling pointing towards the fact that I have got COVID. Now, you might say, well, maybe I wish you just had a cold or or you had flu. Could be. But two other people in my household, my wife and my daughter, also had COVID this week. It would be incredibly strange for me not to have picked it up, given that we're not even living in a house at the moment that has space to keep ourselves apart from each other, we're living in a tiny little log cabin in the garden whilst the house is being built. We're on top of each other. We are literally, it's impossible to segregate and be separated. We're sharing the same air. We are sleeping in the same beds. We're sitting on the same sofa. We are in the same tiny little space. And it started to flag this thought process for me about common sense versus data and science. And Should we have to combine the two to come up with the right decision or the right outcome? I'm almost certain I've got COVID. The science and data says I haven't. Does that then mean that I should continue going about my business, continue going into work, mixing with other people, because the science says I I don't have COVID? Or should the common sense part of me flag to everybody else that I'm pretty sure I have got COVID, but i've taken tests and they all say i'm negative do you want me to continue coming into work do you want to continue mixing with me i'm telling you that i've got the symptoms i've got every symptom there is in the book i could well pass something on to you whether it's covid or not i could well transmit some germs or virus to you if we're in close contact that's common sense and that's of course what i exactly what i did that's exactly the way i played it the common sense had to override the science and data in that incident because I'm sure, pretty sure, I have probably COVID, but if not, something very similar to COVID that I don't want to pass on to anyone else. If we'd simply gone with the data and the science, the protocols at work say that I can continue going to work, no questions asked, there we go, I carry on. And of course, it got me thinking, as ever, about other incidents, particularly from the world of Formula One, where occasionally we might blindly follow the numbers overlooking other evidence that might be in front of us, centred around common sense, centred around experience or human intuition. Sometimes those things can be really valuable. And yet in the modern day, we often overlook them because we've become so reliant on the numbers, on the data, or on the science. And if I factor this back towards Formula One, as I often like to do, there are a number of incidents, particularly through my time in Formula One, that I can recount, that I can recall and throw back to where this happened, where we blindly followed the science or the data, following the numbers, following the protocols that might be put in place through some very scientific processes that have been conjured up and developed over many years through some very clever people, but forgetting to sometimes use the experience and the intuition of the people around us in that moment. Formula One is such a science and data-driven industry that I think that has happened more and more in recent times. I can think of a number of examples around weather prediction at Formula One events where this kind of thing has happened. Simple examples. Weather prediction is typically based on on radar information that's coming in, data that's collected scientifically from satellites and radar information that's fed back to the pit wall at the Grand Prix to help make decisions about what kind of tyre you might want to be on, how you're going to formulate your race strategy. And we, like many other teams, used to send our very own heavily advanced, technologically advanced little truck that we would packed full of weather radar and satellite kit up into the hills close to the circuit to monitor weather systems that might be circulating or surrounding the circuit and get a very accurate prediction on if and when those weather systems might make impact on the racetrack itself. How could it impact our Grand Prix, and given that we would have that very advanced and detailed scientific and often very accurate information, could we use it to advantage to outsmart the opposition? Is our kit and our interpretation of that science and data can it be better than the competition to give us a competitive advantage? can we make a better decision because of this really detailed, clever information that we've got being fed back into us all the way through the Grand Prix weekend. Information that we have invested a huge amount of time and especially money into not only creating the van all the technology in it, but also training and employing a very, very clever meteorologist to interpret all of that information and feed it back to us. We were very proud of having invested in this particular aspect of our Grand Prix weekend because we thought we'd done it better than anyone else. And perhaps because of that, because we were so proud of what we'd achieved, we perhaps often blindly followed the information without throwing in a little bit of an element of common sense into the mix as well. And on more than one occasion, the weather radar information that was being fed back to us on the pit wall would say, look, it's going to rain in the next minute. Certain level of consistency and it's going to last for this long. Or it might say the current shower that you're experiencing down at the racetrack should have left the circuit. Within the next minute or so, and then it will remain clear. And we would base our strategic decisions on that information. It was all top secret, it was coded, it was scrambled in terms of the radio frequencies that we used to communicate the information. It was something that we protected heavily because it was our USP, it was our thing that we could use to our advantage. But on a number of occasions, that information would come in. We would base our strategic decisions around it, and it might be wrong. And on some of those occasions, I'd be sitting in the garage along with my colleagues, listening to some of this communication around weather systems coming in, looking out the window or looking out the front of the garage, thinking, this does not sound like what I'm seeing with my own eyes right above the circuit right now. This guy that was sat up in the hills somewhere out around the outskirts of the circuit. Yes, he's sitting there staring at banks and banks of screens of data imagery coming in on his screens that he's interpreting and then feeding back to us. Numbers scrolling across his screen, graphs jumping up and down, giving all manner of information, all really valuable, really useful information. But sometimes we'd forget to look out the window. Sometimes we'd forget to look up at the sky. I mean, we do it at home, don't we? We sit there scrolling our phones, staring at a tiny screen in the palm of our hand to find out what the weather's doing just outside of our own house. And sometimes it's just easier and often more accurate for your specific location to just open the curtains, open the door, peer outside, look up at the sky. Those things on occasions at Grand Prix we didn't do. And that common sense element, when the data might say we're in the midst of a torrential downpour, a downpour that it says might last for another five to ten minutes, for example, that's crucial information. But if we stick our head from outside the cover of the pit wall timing stand, and actually see that it's already stopped raining where we are down at the circuit, well, that's a very different decision that then's gonna be made, isn't it? About tires, about strategy. The data can be wrong. The data might not have all of the information. It might not have the viewpoint that your own eyes have when you open them and look up at the sky. It seems so simple and so obvious And yet it's forced us as a Formula One team, albeit some time ago, into some incorrect decisions that must have created poorer outcomes than we could have otherwise had if we'd been able to use the common sense element alongside that data. And the same thing applies to so many other types of decision that we make, both in life, but also, of course, in Formula One. In the early days of using data to formulate strategic decisions much more like the way we do today, when this process first began, rather than just using data as a reactive tool, the first elements of using that as a in a proactive sense to formulate your race strategy, to make decisions on the fly based on the data you had. In those early days, these things happened more and more often. We got it wrong more and more often because we were so blinded by this new found use of big data that we had at our disposal, we thought it was the key to everything. We thought it was the answer to everything. And we almost threw the common sense element out the window in favour of this seemingly much more accurate big data tool that we had in front of us. There was a situation at the Monaco Grand Prix, I remember where the data told us midway through a Grand Prix, during a safety car period, that we had to make the pit stop. We had to come in and make the pit stop because we could have never possibly got to the end of the race without refueling, without changing tires, and we had to make the pit stop. We were lying second in the Grand Prix at that time. Now, pretty much everyone else had the same idea. And so making the pit stop would have essentially brought us out after the pit stops, still in second place because the guy in front of us was doing exactly the same. Everybody needed refueling. Everybody needed tires. There was a common sense element to that process, though, which the data hadn't factored in that stated that if the guy leading the race ahead of us, if he peels into the pits to make his pit stop under that safety car situation during the midway through the race, well, if we're following him, he pits. If we don't pit, if we stay out, Yes, of course, we still have to make a pit stop to refuel and change tyres at some point. But with the 20 or so laps of fuel we still had left on board on the car, with the lifespan that we still had left of our tyres, we could utilise the clear track that would now be in front of us. Monaco's a racetrack where it's notoriously difficult to overtake. We'd spent the first half of our race tucked up in second place, unable to get past into first, hampered, in terms of making any progress, because we were sat behind the car leading the Grand Prix. Well, the data didn't factor any of that into its decision-making process. If we'd followed the data, we would have simply followed everybody else come into the pits, because it was the obvious thing to do if you look at the numbers. But the experience and the common sense, the experience of The engineers on the pit wall, the strategists, people who had life experience in this area knew exactly what opportunity we had specifically at Monaco with a clear track in front of us. With the 20 laps of fuel we had left, we could potentially open up a big enough gap to be able to make a pit stop and still get back out in front of the cars after we've made that pit stop and lead the Grand Prix home because we factored in that our lap times, we had enough performance left in the car to stretch our legs on a newly found clear track. Now the data back then could have never factored that into the conversation, but the human element could. And so that's exactly what we did. And we didn't make the pit stop. We stayed out when everyone else pitted. We took track position and we exploited it when the safety car went in, we pushed like hell, and we stretched our legs and we stretched the gap To enable us to make the pit stop late on and still come out in front of the the Grand Prix and we went on to win that race. Had we blindly followed the science and data led decisions, we would not have won that race. But the human experience element, the common sense element thrown into the mix alongside the data gave us the opportunity to take a Grand Prix victory. Very special moment, a very special day. There are endless scenarios, of course, where we talk about Formula One with a team in the garage sitting in front of banks of monitors with huge amounts of data at their disposal to help make decisions around strategies and tyre changes, pit stops, settings that need to be relayed to the driver that he can make changes on the steering wheel with. And then, of course, there's the driver who sat in that car with a totally different perspective. He doesn't have access to anywhere near the amount of data that the team have at their disposal. But he has something that they don't. And that's his experience as a driver. That's his feeling as that driver. The feeling going through the seat of his pants. The feeling through his hands, gloved hands on the steering wheel. The feedback that the car is giving him as a feeling. Well, the team don't have that. They can't possibly have that. They can have data that can replicate some elements of it, but they can't have the feeling that the driver has. And sometimes that feeling can be the most valuable piece of information. Sometimes, of course, it can work the other way, where the driver will have a really strong feeling, but the data and the information that the team might have at their disposal might counteract that. It might put it in a slightly different perspective, and sometimes it can override it. But ultimately, the best decisions tend to come when you combine both of those elements, there are lots of moments like that in Formula One where data and science can be fantastic. Formula One is at the cutting edge of data and science. We have developed systems now which are so advanced. We are leading the way in many areas around the world, developing systems that are more advanced than any other industry in utilising, analysing and deploying big data to make these split second decisions that we have to make in Formula One. But we've also got some incredibly talented and experienced people in Formula One who have experience of certain situations that data perhaps can't replicate in the same way. We're gonna have these decisions when it comes to autonomous vehicles on our roads making decisions about what to do in a split second when faced with a problem of hitting a pedestrian crossing the road or crashing into another oncoming vehicle. What does the car decide to do? Perhaps a human at the wheel would make a decision, albeit a snap decision, based on its own life experience, based on its intuition from that experience that it's acquired over many years. It has a different perspective to the perspective that an AI-based computer system could possibly have in terms of driving that car and making a decision that could have potentially disastrous, even fatal outcomes. These are big decisions that have multiple elements to them. And I feel like there are so many scenarios in life like this where data can take us so far sometimes way farther than we can go as humans on our own. But when you combine the data and the science with the human element, with the intuition, the experience, with the common sense, when you combine the two, well, potential is unlimited. It's something that I often advise companies to think more about, to never forget the value of the people within their business and their experience both within their company, perhaps from companies that they may have worked at before, but also just their life experience. What value that can offer the company when combined with some of the really advanced technical systems and data that they have at their disposal. There are two things. We've already talked about the fact that sometimes the data can get it wrong. The data's only as good as whoever programmed it and when it was programmed. Has the environment you're operating in changed since the system was built, since the data was programmed into that system? Is it fit for modern purpose? That's the first question. But even if it is, there are still occasions when the data might not quite get it right. So layer your decision making process with an element of common sense, either above or below the data level, just to sense check yourself before making a big decision even though we've got numbers that tell us that we're making the right call, does it look right? Does it feel right? Do the people in our company who have experience over many years in this area, do they think it feels and looks right too? And if it doesn't, well then question it. Just ask it again, run the numbers again. See what alternate options you might have available to you. But the other element to this is that in the modern day, Businesses are utilising data more and more and more. Now it can provide a huge number of opportunities. Using big data especially can open up avenues that just simply weren't there for us before we managed to tap into this as a resource. It can be a massively valuable way to differentiate your business. However, at the top end of most of these big businesses now, everybody's using big data. Everybody has access to massive amounts of data, and everybody is streamlining their decision-making process based on data. They're cutting out the human element because it's cheaper, and it can be faster. It can be more efficient. They can get to a decision more quickly. Formula One does it. Formula One utilises AI now to decide which development path they're going to go down with their car, because having run detailed simulations, it can discount a number of development paths that might be available to them, but they will only pick out the most efficient one, the one they think is going to deliver the best return. And it can be a really great way to streamline your business. It can save you a huge amount of time and money. But then there's this element that if everybody's doing it, well then perhaps the differentiator perhaps the competitive advantage swings back to the company that offers that human element into their processes a company that makes decisions utilizing that human intuition and experience can often be set aside from the competition because of it it might cost you a bit more money it might cost you an extra salary because there's another human into the mix But if it gives you an added value proposition, if it gives you another element that your competition can't offer to clients or customers, a USP, well, that can bring more value to you in the end. It can be worth it. I actually think this is not something specific to Formula One or to business. I think as individuals, we're now exposed to more data than ever before. And it's in the palm of our hands. Our phones tell us so much about what we should be doing, what we should be eating, how we should be dressing, what we should look like, what our behaviours should be like. Our phones connect to fitness tracking watches that monitor our fitness, our heart rate, our blood sugar levels, our temperatures. They tell us if we're healthy or not. Our phones tell us if the life that we lead should be making us happy or sad. They tell us what success should look like. The data that we receive when we open up social media or any of the multitude of apps that we open every single day tell us how to behave. When the reality is What we need to do more of, and this is a societal problem in general around the world, is we need to just put the phone down for a moment. We need to look up in the same way that we had to look outside of the timing stand on the pit wall to see if it was raining or not. We need to shut down the phone, put it back in our pockets and look up, look around us, start to be aware of our own feelings, not the feelings that the phone is telling us we should have based on the, the behaviours that the phone has told us we should be doing. Our phones tell us how we should feel if we save up all our money and buy that expensive pair of trainers that we've seen someone else wearing on Instagram and loving life, bouncing around top of their game, winning at life. Those trainers, well, they should make us feel the same way. Even if we can't afford them. Same goes for a Lamborghini. The Lamborghini's your key ticket to winning in this world. That's going to send you down the path of happiness if you can get to a point where you can buy yourself a Lamborghini. Nonsense. That's what the phone's going to tell you. That phone that we stare at all day, every day, consuming that data, that information that somebody else has curated for us telling us that's what we need. That's what is going to make our lives feel enriched. That's what's going to improve our days. Someone else has decided that. Someone else has put that algorithm together that's going to serve you up a constant flow of data that we more and more often then live our lives by. I am a big supporter of social media. I love it. I spend a lot of time on it myself. I use it. I see the value in it. But I also see the value of not staring at screens and digital displays, of not just basing my life around the data that somebody Instagram has decided is the data that I need to consume every day. I have spent years learning and understanding that this data can be valuable. It can offer me something of value in my life. If it didn't, I wouldn't be on social media. I wouldn't use it. But it does offer me value. It's a way of connecting to people that I would otherwise have no other connection to. People around the world that I have no physical connection to really useful for all sorts of things like that, for sharing messages of positivity around the world, for sharing information that can help people. But I am also very aware or aware enough to know that all of the information that I consume through the social media platforms or the apps that I have on my phone is not the be all and end all. It should not be the only metric that I measure my life by. It should not be the only pieces of information that I use to make decisions. And actually, on many occasions, the best thing to do, by all means, take in some of that information, but combine it with your intuition, with your experience. Put the phone down and look up. Look around you. Become aware of your own feelings, not the feelings that that data or that digital information has told you you should feel. Not the feelings you're expected to feel, but what are your actual feelings? You can't really experience your own inner feelings if you're constantly being, being bombarded with an expected set of feelings from a digital device in the palm of your hand that has no meaningful connection to you and certainly doesn't place any value On your life experience or your human intuition, your level of common sense. It doesn't value your real feelings, it values the expectation that it puts on you because that then changes your behaviour and that serves the need of the very app or device that you've been staring at for most of your life in the very first place. It becomes a vicious cycle. Put the phone down, look up. Utilize common sense. Layer it in your decision making process, whether you're a company, whether you're a Formula One team, or just an individual. Add in an element of common sense to your decision making process, whether those are decisions about big existential choices that you have to make in life, or the kind of decisions you make hundreds of times every single day about your behaviors. The things you choose to do every single day are you doing them because the data has told you that's what you should be doing through the likes of an Instagram app or are you doing it because it's genuinely what is going to serve you is it going to make you happy has it got some meaningful connection to you that's going to put you in a better place once you've made that decision Because I think if we ask ourselves those questions on a regular basis, daily, weekly, we'd probably make a lot of very different decisions. I think we'd spend less time on our phones. And as a result of that, our behaviours would probably change. Now, look, I didn't know where this particular conversation was going to go when I started it. This came about, remember, all the way back at the start of this, off the back of, a couple of dodgy COVID tests, lateral flow tests that I did, which said I don't have COVID, and yet I feel like I do. Now, this is a bigger conversation about utilising common sense when making decisions as opposed to solely relying on data. I have experience of working in one of the most technologically advanced industries in the world, Formula One, an industry that has so much clever, incredible tech at his disposal, amazing people. But sometimes those amazing people in the past, and probably still to this day, are guilty of becoming overly reliant on the tech, on the data. And I think that businesses around the world do the same. And I'm pretty sure, in fact, I know for a fact that many of us do the same. And the point I'm making about the social media side of things, about the phone use and the apps that we rely on, is that many of us do this daily without even realising it. We don't apply common sense to our decision-making process because many cases, common sense has been wiped out of us. It's been eradicated in these moments because we have become so blindly reliant on this incredible device That we hold in the palm of our hands for much of our days, which can offer us huge value, which can offer us so much information endless amounts of information available through that tiny portal in the palm of your hand. But the information is there for everybody. It's what you do with the information that leads to successful outcomes or otherwise. And unless we question the information, unless we utilise that information in conjunction with our own feelings, with our own expertise, with our own experience, unless we combine the both of those things, it's going to be far harder to reach the successful outcomes that I think we would probably all love to get to ourselves. Okay, that's the end of that particular topic. I want to bring this on to Formula One racing in Las Vegas. As I said at the beginning of this, this has been a slightly controversial decision. It's been a decision that's been coming for some time. It's a decision, or at least it's been an outcome, that's been desired for many years. Bernie Eccleston tried and tried, failed many times, but continued to try to stage a race at Vegas for decades now, and yet it's proved. Always too tricky to line up all the various parties to make it happen. The funding, the permissions, closing down the strip in Vegas where it has so many hotels and casinos that would have restricted access as a result of the Grand Prix shutting down the strip. They don't want that. Hotel capacity at, in Las Vegas along the strip there is at pretty much 100%, almost for the entire year. That's how busy that place is. They are not interested in Formula One coming to town with their little circus, closing down the access to many of their hotel fronts because they want to put a racetrack down the middle of it. That represents a loss of income, a loss of revenue for them. If their hotels are at capacity for almost the entire year, why would they want anything to come along and disrupt that? And, you know, the reason that they've been able to allow this to happen, to make this happen, is twofold. Partly because we've got a huge drive now from Liberty Media, of course, to exploit the untapped market that is the entire United States. And we'll get onto that in a moment. That's clear. There's also a growing interest in Formula One in the States Lots of areas of the United States are now interested in F1 that were never interested just five, certainly 10 years ago. But the other reason that Formula One has been able to stage this race when there's historically been so much resistance from the incumbent hoteliers and casino owners, not wanting to impinge on their almost 100% capacity Uh, hotel capacity over the course of the entire year is because I say they run at almost 100% capacity all year there is one weekend which traditionally they're not at 100% capacity and that's the Thanksgiving weekend in the US and that is exactly the weekend that Formula One is now coming to town Now, it's not just about filling those hotels, of course, because Formula One coming to town is going to put on an extravagant show, a spectacular show that will reverberate around the world, I have no doubt, both in terms of the broadcast spectacle that it'll be, but also the fact that the venue for this Grand Prix is going to be so spectacular. It's going to be so Instagram worthy that from a social media perspective, something that Bernie Eccleston's era of Formula One just ignored, but Liberty Media are embracing. From a social media perspective, this is going to get mad. This is going to go viral. There are going to be Instagram posts from some of the world's biggest influencers, I have no doubt, Around the Vegas Grand Prix, reverberating around the world, putting both Formula One on the map, but also Vegas. Putting Vegas on the map as if it wasn't already, but as a destination for the young, the glitzy, the glamorous, the high octane, as an entertainment capital of the world. And this is kind of why I wanted to talk about this, because this is a story for me, certainly in the realms of this particular podcast. This is a story of adaptation, of reinventing yourself. Now, this is something that Formula One teams are incredibly good at. Formula One teams have to reinvent themselves all the time in the face of changing regulations from the sports governing body, of course. They have to reinvent their own cars, but also in the changing environment that is the world that we all live in. Formula One has had to reinvent itself many times. Formula One teams have had to reinvent itself themselves many times in terms of survival. From a sponsorship perspective, we had the tobacco era for many, many years, which was a hugely successful time for F1 teams. Massive amounts of money coming in in title sponsorship deals, hundreds of millions of dollars. And then tobacco advertising got banned. That was the mid 2000s. And so Formula One teams turned to the banking sector, the finance sector. Big amounts of money started coming in from big global banks. And then 2008 happened, the big global banking crash. And the banking sector ran away from Formula One and everything else with their tails between their legs. Formula One teams had to look elsewhere. And so then they had to re-market themselves towards technology companies, communication companies stepped in. But gradually, as the world suffered off the back of the financial crisis and recession set in around the world, gradually it became harder and harder to find these hundreds of millions of dollars worth of title sponsorship deals to which they'd become used to for many, many years prior to that. And they had to reinvent the model again. And so now in today's Formula One, huge title sponsorships of those days are long gone. And now teams are bringing in lots of smaller deals, multiple partners. That means aligning themselves with multiple partners, lots of different companies from lots of different sectors, appeasing every single one of them, lining up and squaring up their values with each of those different companies, offering value to every single one of those companies in different ways. It's a huge undertaking. It's a very different undertaking to the one that they've become used to from their decades and decades of history before that. The big F1 teams have reinvented themselves as more than just Formula One teams. They're technology companies themselves. McLaren led the way with their applied division, applying their Formula One expertise, their technology, much of their resource in other industries utilising their rapid pace of development that Formula One's famed for in outside industry. Williams have done the same, now Mercedes and Red Bull have all followed suit, others also trying to do similar things, tapping into a world outside of Formula One that can benefit from the expertise developed within that world of Formula One. So, adaptation and reinventing yourself is something that's not new to F1 teams. They've become good at it over the years. They've had to, not only to survive, but also to find the competitive advantage they're constantly looking for. Formula One itself is going through massive change right now, reinventing itself in many ways. And they're doing it incredibly successfully under the leadership of new owners of the sport, Liberty Media. An American media company is transforming this global sport of Formula One. An already very successful sport, but they're transforming it into something way bigger and better than it was before. A sport fit for the modern world. A sport that can actually lead the way in many areas of that modern world as well. To do that, you have to reinvent yourself. You have to at least adapt to the changing environment around you. It was something that Bernie Eccleston, particularly in his later years in charge of Formula One, didn't really excel at. It wasn't something that he was particularly good at, having a vision of the future and then adapting towards it to generate future success. He was reliant on his old way of doing things, on his existing ways of doing things. He had generated success for him for many years in the past. So why should he look to do something different when his old way of doing things was working? And that will get you so far for a certain period of time. But if you can't adapt, if you can't change and adapt to the world around you, if you can't look for opportunities and adapt to suit those opportunities you're going to be missing out on a huge amount of potential. And whilst Formula One and Formula One teams are very good at reinventing themselves and adapting, the fact that we're going to Las Vegas next year for a Grand Prix on a Saturday night is also a major sign that Las Vegas itself is adapting and reinventing itself, as it has done many times over history. Las Vegas used to be just about gambling. They went through phases of pitching themselves or positioning themselves as a family holiday destination. That particular one wasn't one that had much success. But then they turned to the music industry. They turned to the food industry. And now it's a place where you can go and watch some of the biggest musical acts around the world at Vegas, on the strip, in some of the hotels and casinos that are based there. You can dine at some of the finest restaurants where some of the world's best Michelin star chefs have residencies, have their own restaurants there. So you can get the very best in terms of musical entertainment, the very best in food, the very best in hotels. You can find some of the best golf resorts. And of course, you can still go and gamble. And now Las Vegas is turning more and more towards the sports industry for another element, another string to their bow. They're adapting again, looking for more avenues to bring in revenue and to bring in people into what they describe as the entertainment capital of the world. Some of the world's biggest sporting events, massive heavyweight boxing clashes, They've just announced that the Super Bowl is coming to Vegas in a couple of years' time. They didn't even have an NFL team until pretty recently. They are attracting major sporting events to this city because it now links in with the entertainment umbrella that goes alongside the music, goes alongside the hotels, the restaurants, the entertainment. And of course, Formula One fits perfectly in that. A global sport coming to Vegas on the Thanksgiving weekend, the one weekend when there is free capacity, free space in this city, where it's not bursting at the seams as it is for the rest of the year. Putting a spotlight on this place that will shine it to the rest of the world as an amazing place to come and experience things that you cannot experience anywhere else. A Formula One night race on a Saturday night down the Strip in Vegas. People won't just come for the Grand Prix. They'll come because there's so much else on offer when they get there. Similarly, why are they going to go to Miami? Same reason people go to Monaco and they go to Singapore destination events that can offer more than just a Grand Prix. That works for Formula One. It also works for the host city. Formula One will bring in an audience. The city will embrace that audience and offer so much more than Formula One for the travelling spectators. It's a win-win for everybody. Now, of course, there's controversy about the number of races escalating in Formula One terms. There's controversy about potentially some of the more classic and traditional venues dropping off the calendar because spectacular destination venues like Vegas might be joining. And those might all be genuine concerns. But Formula One, under the ownership of Liberty, as it was under the ownership of Bernie Eccleston and CBC... Is a business. It's a business that has to grow, it has to make money, it has to continue to make more money, it has to generate return on the investment, the $4 billion of investment that Liberty Media put into buying the sport. And I think this is where the major lesson is. Of course, as a business, Liberty are doing wonderful things with Formula One. They're growing it in so many ways and in so many areas. Tapping into the USA as a relatively untapped market seems like an obvious one. But what a brilliant job they're doing of it so far. And Vegas seems like a natural and genius step in stepping it up to the next level. Miami, I'm sure, will be a success. We know already that the Austin Grand Prix is a success. It might be three races in the States, but Those races from coast to coast are 2,000 miles apart. There's at least 1,000 miles between any of those three races. There are many more races in Europe, much closer than that, although they're in different countries. Now, we're attached to some of those for very good reason. They have history. They have great racetracks. And in some cases, we're speculating that we might switch some of those out for a destination street race on the other side of the world that has no connection to this sport historically. That might be a genuine concern. However, it's only a genuine concern if we see the past as something that either can't coexist with a new future, or even at some point be superseded by a new future that could end up potentially offering us something different, maybe even better. Maybe the future of Formula One looks different to the way that the past looks. In fact, it's inevitable. Every stage of Formula One's history has looked back with rose-tinted glasses and fond memories of what went before. Many of us are desperately missing, pining for that screaming V8 sound coming out of the cars of the early 2000s. I mean, I miss it myself. But I don't think many of us can say that what we don't have today is a great product of Grand Prix racing. Cars that, particularly now in 2022, look raceable, look competitive, with a feel that maybe even looks closer. The prospect of future racing looking really exciting. And yet there's no screaming V8 engine in sight. There's not a V10. We haven't seen one of those or heard one of those for many years. We've got halos on the cars that people hated and yet have now saved a number of lives. I can't see too many people complaining about the halo today. And yet, when they were being introduced, people were messaging me on a regular basis saying, if they bring in this halo idea, I will not be watching Formula One again. I bet they're watching now. And if they're not, they're missing out. And so, Destination races like Vegas that will offer a massive entertainment spectacle. I think personally are something to be embraced. I don't want to lose some of the brilliant traditional venues that we've all loved in the past. But I do want a future of Formula One that's forward thinking, that is adapting to the changing world that is adapting to entice a new audience, a growing audience that's going to make this sport bigger and more successful. Because that's not just beneficial to the accountants at Liberty Media. It could be beneficial to every single one of us. It could be beneficial to future generations of Formula One fans that don't even exist yet. I think it's an exciting prospect. And what I'm most excited about is the fact that Formula One has reached a stage in its life where it's willing and able to be adaptable, to reinvent itself when necessary, to embrace a future that might look very different to the past, even though the past was really successful. I can think back to occasions when I was at McLaren in the pit stop crew, a pit stop crew that was leading the way on many occasions in terms of being the fastest at changing wheels and tyres, at being the most repeatable, the most reliable, the most consistent. We went through spells when the rest of the pit lane was chasing us in the pit stop stakes. And yet, sometimes during those spells, Ron Dennis would give us a mandate to do things differently in pit stops, to try and find ways to be better. To almost throw out the old rule book and reinvent ourselves in terms of the technology, the equipment, the tooling, the way the car was designed, the processes we used, sometimes even the people that we used the training regimes we went through. We were sometimes asked to throw away the old way of doing things and almost start again, even though we were often the best and leading the way in that particular field. That can be a difficult thing to do. But reinventing yourself and constantly looking for new ways and new opportunities, new ways of doing things, new ways of succeeding if you're not constantly doing that, there will be someone else who is. And therein lies an opportunity for those people. There's a saying in Formula One that says, if you stand still, you get left behind. And it's as true on the racetrack as it is off it. If we aren't constantly looking for the next opportunity, for these marginal gains that Formula One is famed for, the continuous improvement strategy that Formula One teams employ, but also Formula One itself employs. That's what makes this business and this industry so successful. And it's where one of the biggest lessons that I now travel around the world sharing to other companies lies. The idea that winning, winning the world championship is not the end of the game. Becoming the best at whatever you do is not the finish line. It doesn't stop there. If it does stop there, you won't maintain that position for very long. Your success won't be sustainable. And it's exactly the same for Formula One. Bernie Eccleston ran out of vision in this modern world where perhaps technology, consumer habits, the needs of his audience, Formula One fans was changing and he wasn't able to change quickly enough to embrace it. He wasn't able to foresee what that might look like in five or ten years' time and set plans in place to be ready for it, to embrace that. Whereas Liberty have done that. And some of the changes that we may not like on the face of it, that we may not think are traditional Formula One plans... That may not be the way Formula One has always operated. And that might be the way that we've grown up loving it. But it doesn't mean it can't lead to a bigger, better and brighter future. Formula One has constantly changed over its many, many years. Over 70 years Formula One's been going. And it now looks so different today. Unrecognisably different to the way that it did decades before. Now, decades ago if somebody had proposed a vision of Formula One cars that looked like the ones we have today, it would have been unheard of, it would have been unthinkable. There would have been moaning, there would have been complaining, there'd have been resistance from so many areas, just like there is today with some of the decisions that are coming our way. But look what it's led on to. A global business, huge global sporting business, that's getting bigger and bigger, just when many people thought it really couldn't get any bigger than it is. The value that this industry offers not only to its fans and the people within it, but to so many more people outside of the sport is huge. It's impressive. It should be applauded. And I think offers so much to you and I, people that may not have any professional or commercial connection directly to Formula 1 people that might just watch it on a Sunday afternoon on their televisions should start embracing some of the lessons that can come from it. Because being that adaptive, being that reactive, proactive, being able to reinvent yourself, even if you think life's going pretty well, looking to the future is a really valuable lesson that we can all benefit from, believe me. I've seen businesses fail as a result of not being able to prepare for the future. A future that undoubtedly will be different to the current situation that you are existing in. And that is exactly the same. It's relevant to all of us. The fact that Formula One has embraced a Saturday night Grand Prix in Vegas is adapting to the situation that they'll be in, in that weekend, in that moment, in that territory because Saturday night in Vegas is where it's at. It's the main event. And if you're going to go to a destination like Vegas, if you're going to embrace all that Vegas is, well, why not adapt your schedule as well as adapting everything else? Why not make the most of where you're going? And who says, other than because of tradition, that we can't have a race on a Saturday? It might seem out of place. It might seem abnormal. It's not what we're used to. But what we're used to isn't always the best thing moving forward. It isn't always the best way to approach the future. It may have been the best way to get us through the past. But looking forward, sometimes we have to adapt. Sometimes we have to come up with a new way of doing things, thinking completely differently, throwing away the old rule book, thinking outside the box. Trying to understand what the future might look like, where you're going to be in that future, what you want it to look like for you can offer some of the best ideas and the best solutions, which might mean changing the way you go about living your life. Some of the decisions you make today leading on to a successful outcome that you might want some way further down the line there's a lesson I think we can all benefit from. Have a think about some of those things this week, guys. I appreciate every single one of you listening. I do hope you found some value in all of that. If you have, please let me know. Please do. Give me a shout out. Hit me up on social media. Leave a review and a a rating in the podcast store. I would really appreciate that. Honestly, it would genuinely mean the world. If you want to leave your social media handle in that review, I'll search you out. i read every single one of them. I will drop you a line. I'll message you. I've done it over the last couple of weeks to lots and lots of people. If you want me to come and say thank you personally, I would love to be able to do that. Let me know who you are. Anyway, for now, I want to say a big thank you for listening this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please share it around. Tell your friends. We'll, of course, be back next week again with something else. Don't know what it's going to be. Have no idea. But whatever you're doing this week, Have a great week and don't forget, do the right things, do the things right.